Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Andy Osment, the firm's Chief Information Security Officer. I'm excited to be joined by Dick Clark. Uh, Dick is one of the world's leading experts on security, counterterrorism, and cybersecurity. Uh, he served in the US government for over 30 years, uh, including as the president's counterterrorism coordinator under both Presidents Bush and Clinton. Speaking personally, when I left academia and joined the US government, uh, Dick was one of the people that I reached out to to uh, get advice from. And his most recent book with Rob Knocki is The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Welcome, Dick. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, the Fifth Domain came out uh, this summer, uh, and it's actually a sequel to the book Cyber War, uh, which Rob Knocki and I wrote 10 years ago. Uh, and 10 years ago, we were laughed at, frankly, when the book came out, um, because we said crazy things. Um, like, hackers in the future would be military organizations. Uh, and rather than stealing just credit card information and personal identifiable information, uh, they would attack uh, electric power grids. Uh, and they would, rather than just turning things off, they would destroy things. They'd destroy physical objects in the real world through cyber attack. Uh, Wired Magazine said, file under fiction. <laughs> so 10 years later, Rob and I decided we would write another book that said, na 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 <laughs> Is that a technical term? That's a technical term. It means we were right. Um, because all of that did happen, and we can talk about that. Um, but we were also fundamentally wrong. Uh, because 10 years ago, in cyber war, we said, um, any company can be hacked. And essentially, we threw up our hands and said, there's nothing you can do. Um, you're screwed. If someone wants to get into your corporate network, they're going to. Um, and when we started doing the research for this book, we were shocked to find that's no longer true. And where this really revealed itself was the massive Russian attack on Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, all these attacks get silly names. I've yet to find the, the people who come up with the silly names. But this this is, one had a kind of an award-winning uh, silly A particularly name. silly name. It was called Not Petya. Um, um, because at first we thought it was Petya. Anybody want to guess why? Um, yeah, it was Not Petya. Um, what it did was it got into the Russian uh, military intelligence, uh, hacked their way into kind of the equivalent of QuickBooks for Ukraine, the, the uh, auditing tax software everybody uses. And it does a monthly update, you know, pushes software update. Uh, so that gets to the firewall, it's signed, and it goes right through the firewall. And once it did, the NotPetya Pac-Man, in essence, uh, the Pac-Man began eating all the software on the network. And just destroying it. There was no software left. Company after company after company. Servers, laptops, routers, everything 
became doorstops, became yep. bricks. They were just useless. There was no software on them. And I think the Russians didn't intend this. I think this was collateral damage. But it jumped onto the virtual private networks of American and European companies that had offices in Ukraine and then wiped out everything on their networks around the world. So you get um, a big pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. Production stopped. Production stopped of pills. Um, a big uh, shipping container company around the world, 75 major ports where the big cranes that pick up the containers froze in midair. Uh, and then when they got them going again, they didn't know what was in the containers or where the containers were supposed to go. Yep. I mean, on and on and on, hundreds of companies, uh, but hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. You make a point in the book that I think is really important because I think even in the cybersecurity industry, we really focused on those companies that had significant losses. Right. And essentially, we went around and we went to you know, corporate leaders and other people in this industry and we said, hey, this is really important. Look what can happen. Look what happened to Marriott. Yeah. Look what happened to Equifax. Look what happened to Yahoo. We can go down the list. Target. But what you guys said was, what about the dog that didn't bark? The Sherlock Holmes novel, The Dog That Didn't Bark. So we looked at what big American companies had offices in Ukraine that didn't say anything about them being hacked. As you know, the, uh, the rule is if you're a publicly traded company and you have a material breach, you have to publicly report that to the SEC. You know when someone's been hacked, the word gets around. Uh, and we found a whole list of companies. I'll say some of them, some of them, because they didn't tell us this. We we found out independently. Hyatt Hotels, uh, big operation in Ukraine. It bounced off them. Uh, Delta Airlines, uh, Boeing, uh, companies in a variety of sectors didn't get hacked. And so we started looking around the country and talking to people. Uh, and quietly, a lot of companies would say to us, yeah, we don't get hacked. Or if we do, it gets into the network uh, and it's contained. Yep. Uh, and we started saying, okay, well, in addition to the money you're spending, in addition to the governance, in addition to the culture, why can you, why can you do this now? You couldn't do it 10 years ago. You couldn't do it five years ago. And the answer is there are new technologies. There's no killer app, there's no one technology. But if you get the right technologies and you put them together and you integrate them well, uh, endpoint detection, machine learning to back it up, um, segmentation, uh, very tight uh, identity access management, multi-factor identity access management and tying that to the uh, access to individual protocols, individual uh, applications, it works. Uh, there are a few other tricks that we found that some people are using. Uh, and you do have to be tricky. Yep. Uh, you do have to use stealth sometimes uh, and deception. Uh, so here's the good news. You can, with a lot of money and a lot of smart people, protect a network. Here's the bad news. Lots of people haven't. And those people include the electric power grid, the natural gas pipelines, and astonishingly, our military weapons. Uh, we spend ridiculous amounts of money to buy a fighter plane, like the F-35. Uh, and then we discover it's not cyber secure. Mm -hmm. New Navy ships are not cyber secure. Uh, and this is not me saying it. 
It's the Defense Department's Defense Science Board yep. saying it over and over and over again. It's the Government Accountability Office. Uh, if we ever had to fight a war, a real war against a cyber literate threat, uh, and that's getting easier to do, to be a cyber literate threat, uh, there's reason to believe a lot of our weapons wouldn't work. And more importantly, the systems behind the weapons, the logistics, the supply, the infrastructure that it, the military needs, a lot of which is civilian, uh, would be attacked and not work either. Let me pull back from that, because that, that's a scenario where the US enters a military conflict and then is harmed by cyber weapons. But you actually posit something else about military conflict at the beginning of the book, where you say, actually, there's a reasonable chance that it will be triggered by cyber conflict. Can you right. tell us more about that? So decision makers seem to think that cyber war is kind of okay. It's kind of playing at war. Uh, no one gets killed in cyberspace. Uh, and therefore, you know, that's okay. When um, Iran did shoot down a US drone recently, a couple of months ago, uh, and the Pentagon got ready to retaliate, and they got all their airplanes ready uh, on the aircraft carrier and in the, in the bases in the Middle East, all their missiles ready on the destroyers. Uh, and then at the last minute, the president said, I don't want to do that. I'm told if I do that, 150 people, Iranians will die. I don't want to kill people. I'll just launch a cyber attack. It shows this kind of mentality that I don't want to kill people, I'll just launch a cyber attack. So you begin a cyber attack thinking that that's not kinetic, it's, it doesn't involve body bags, and what if it escalates? You know, again, the administration has said it attacked, just before the congressional election, it attacked the Russian um, Internet Research Agency in, in St. Petersburg. Uh, the, the troll factory. The intelligence front that was the troll factory in the 2016 election that uh, attacked Hillary Clinton. So the, the US military attacked that uh, um, in 2018. We're beginning to admit now that we're attacking this, we're attacking that. Uh, the threshold for US military action in cyberspace is, uh, is getting lower. And there's no reason to believe that someone who we attack, or someone who attacks us, uh, that that war is going to stay in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Pentagon has a public policy, I think beginning in the Obama administration, that says if we're attacked in cyberspace, we the United States are attacked in cyberspace, we reserve the right to retaliate however we want. Yep. We're gonna make our retaliation decision based on the magnitude of the effect of the attack, and then we will judge how best to respond, including through what they call kinetic weapons, bombs, missiles. Uh, I think it's very likely uh, that a conflict, a tit-for-tat conflict in cyberspace will get to the point where one or the other side is going to say, oh, to heck with it, let's just bomb them. Let's switch gears and talk about election security. Mm. Uh, so in the 2016 election, uh, I, I was at the Department of Homeland Security. At the time, we were extremely worried about the security of our election systems, mm -hmm. uh, the actual voting and tabulation of voting that would occur. And we really were worried about cyber attacks. And of course, these systems are maintained at the state and local level. Um, you know, in you know, it turns out that we were right to be worried, but the, the real threat 
was what we call an information operation, right? Yep. Using things like the advertising to shape opinion. What do you see as the threats for the 2020 election? Um, and how do we, you know, how should we think about them so we don't fall into the same trap of protecting against the wrong thing? Well, I think all the experts in this uh, field, and it's now a field, election security, uh, think that the Russians will do what they did in 2016 and they will do new things. So the, the question is, what are those new things? And, and so far, uh, I haven't heard a lot of brilliant analysis on what they will do that they didn't do last time. But let's, let's look back at 2016 and, and even 2018. It's a system of systems. There are four components to this. One you mentioned is social media. And, and people ask me, uh, you know, how could Russians messing around with Facebook or Twitter affect the election? Seems unlikely. Are we all such pea-brained people that we let the Russians you know, affect us through social media? Well, think about what they actually did. Uh, they got access to data about every voter, every registered voter, uh, polling data, uh, the same kind of data the campaigns had. And they said, oh, you are really worried about the environment. You're likely a green party, potentially a green party voter. We want to make sure you're a green party voter. So they start sending messages to you saying, Hillary Clinton's going to win. Don't worry about that. Use this election as an opportunity to make a statement about the environment. Vote for the Green Party. The margin of victory uh, in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan was less than the Green Party vote in those states. Or they say, hmm, if African Americans don't turn out and vote for the Democratic Party in large numbers in a place like Philadelphia, the Republicans will win Pennsylvania. Let's target West Philadelphia uh, and other neighborhoods of Philadelphia. Let's go in and go after voters in those neighborhoods. They're likely to be African American. We'll go down to the ward level. Uh, we'll target them, uh, and we'll try to persuade them that Hillary Clinton doesn't support African American causes. And we'll say, protest Black Lives Matter by not voting. African American voting in those targeted areas was down 16%, and way more than the margin of victory in those states. So please don't tell me that you can't affect the outcome of social media. You can. Uh, and I think, and, and others uh, who are more expert than, than me, uh, are pretty persuaded that the outcome was affected that way. But that's only one of the, of the components of the system. The other components are uh, so social media. The second one is the candidates' own uh, websites, servers, databases, campaigns, candidates. So getting in, getting John Podesta's emails, that sort of thing. Uh, the third part is the voter databases. Uh, every state has a database about who's eligible to vote and where they have to go to vote. Now, you can't just show up in any voting precinct in New York City if you live, you live in Brooklyn. You can't show up and vote in Manhattan. You gotta go to the right school, the right fire station. If you don't go to the right place, they turn you away. 
Um, so the Russians got into the databases in, I think, 38 states. Uh, 38 states swear that nothing happened to their databases. Well, with all due respect, they wouldn't know if anything happened to their databases. Uh, Capital One Bank, for example, just to name a name, uh, was penetrated and had all of its data stolen. They didn't know for 178 days. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on their cybersecurity. They didn't know that they had been penetrated for 178 days. And then how did they find out? Somebody told them. They heard about it in a chat room. I don't think those states would know if they'd been penetrated. Most companies don't know when they've been penetrated. So what if you get into the database? What can you do? You can switch the polling place so that when you show up, you're told, no, you're at the wrong place. They can take your name off so that when you show up, you have to fill out a form. What does all of that do? It creates lines. It creates long lines. If you do that in precincts where your opponent is strong, you reduce their vote. In 2004, in Ohio, uh, <clears throat> the state intentionally reduced the number of polling places in Democratic precincts. And so the lines got very, very long. The lines in African-American neighborhoods, the lines in university neighborhoods got very, very long, so long that thousands of people went home without voting. And the outcome of the presidential election in 2004 was decided by 17,000 votes in Ohio. I'm not saying there was any hacking there. I'm saying that demonstrates how, if you hack the voter databases and just mess things up in the right precincts, you can cause people not to vote. And then the fourth component of the ecosystem, uh, the system of systems, uh, is the machines themselves and the reporting up from those machines uh, of what the results are. Uh, we know, if you've ever been to any of these, these conventions, these hacker conventions, it's, it's sport at the hacker convention to hack into a voting machine. Uh, this year at the uh, Black Hat convention, they had an 11-year-old, uh, and she hacked right into the voting machine. Um, not hard to do. Can uh, you argue that that's good for our democracy, smart 11-year-olds? I, I love the fact that there are 11-year-old girls that can do that. Um, gives me hope. Um, but wouldn't you like to look at the source code of the voting machine? They won't let you. The voting machine companies won't let the states that buy the machines see the soft source code. It's kind of like you know, Lockheed saying, yeah, you can buy my F-35, but I won't let you see the source code, Pentagon. Uh, they won't let them see the source code. And there are a number of states where there's still no paper backup. And so you can't audit the result. There's no way of knowing what actually happened. If you hit you know, blue and it pops red, there's no way of knowing that happened. You can't go back and sample, you can't go back and audit. Now, the solution to all of this is complex, but it begins with a very simple notion. Federal elections should have federal standards. Same federal security standards. I don't think that's a crazy idea. Uh, apparently it is. Um, because the states oppose it, Mitch McConnell opposes it, uh, and therefore there are no federal standards. 
and the organization that might create them, the Federal Election Commission, has literally shut itself up, shut its doors, walked away. The commissioners quit. Uh, so I don't think we're in great shape for 2020. Um, part of the good news is, however, that the IT security companies are voluntarily giving IT security software and advice to Republican and Democratic candidates, any candidate uh, running for president. Uh, so things are getting a little bit more secure at the campaign level. Uh, and some states, particularly New York, I know, uh, are doing a good job trying to secure their networks. But there will be an attack uh, on, this on this next election. And part of the goal of the attack is not just to create a specific result, but it's to cast doubt in our minds about the result. You know, the overall Russian goal here is to undermine our faith in our government and our faith in our democracy. Why they want to do that, that's a long story. But that's what they want to do. Uh, and whatever the outcome, uh, if their fake news generators say the election was stolen, there was hacking, which now we all believe, right? We'd all believe that if we were told that. That will cast doubt on the outcome. One aspect of your book that I love is, uh, you know, for 20 years, we've been reading and writing doomsday scenarios about cybersecurity with very little optimism about it. But actually, uh, there was optimism in your book. Mm -hmm. Describe to me how you think we actually manage this risk. Give us the optimistic scenario. I think the optimistic scenario is that the defensive technologies catch up and move ahead of the offensive technologies. You know, we tell a story on the first page of the book uh, about President Clinton uh, in 1999, and we're trying to get him to give a speech on cybersecurity uh, to announce massive new uh, appropriations for cybersecurity in 1999. Uh, and he's distracted. Uh, but finally, he turns to us and, and says, yeah, I read your speech, yeah. which means your speech wasn't very good. Um, he said, but, you know, I think basically what you're trying to describe here, it's not just cybersecurity, it's anything throughout history. Somebody creates an offensive weapon. You know, some, some person living in a cave, you know, 50,000 years ago gets a rock and carves it into a, uh, a spear and puts a, a stick on it. Now they have an offensive weapon. Then somebody else has to invent a shield uh, to stop the spear. And throughout history, there's this cycle of offense and defensive weapons coming onto the battlefield. And what you have a period of critical instability uh, is when the offensive weapons have come onto the battlefield and the defensive weapons haven't caught up. And I think, he says, looking at me, I think that's what you're trying to say, that in cyberspace, the offensive weapons are out there and they're having a field day, and the defensive weapons haven't caught up, and until they do, we're going to have a problem. Isn't that right? And I sort of look at him and say, yeah, that's right. That's what you should go say. And he gave a speech in 1999 that said that. Um, I think the defensive weapons are catching up, and we need to keep it that way. Uh, and if we can, if we can... <coughs> put the right amount of money, whether it's in venture capital or private equity or government-sponsored research, academic research, if we can put the right amount of money into getting 
the defensive weapons superior and keeping them there, which is very hard to do because technology changes all the time, as we discussed. If we can keep the defensive weapons better, then at least companies and government organizations that are smart enough to use them will be able to defend themselves in cyberspace. But right now, we've got this period of, of critical instability, not so much in the companies, not so much in the corporations, but between nation states. We live in a, in a period where it's possible for cyber war to occur almost by accident and move into a kinetic war. And that has the ability to bring down critical systems like electric power grids and natural gas pipelines. We have to fix that. We have to make it impossible for any enemy to think that they could take down our power grid or our gas pipeline systems uh, or any of our critical uh, systems that back up our country. The way to stop that attack is to make sure it can't be successful. Thank you very much. Dick Clark, appreciate your coming and sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on September 23rd, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.